Welcome back to the One God Report podcast. Bill Schlegel here. In this episode, we conclude a three-part interview with Dr. Andrew Perry. In this episode, Dr. Perry addresses the question, when and how did the word become flesh, as described in John 1.14? And he addresses the question, what world was made through him in John 1.10. Also in this episode, Dr. Perry will admonish us to discover the types or the parallels, the patterns for the life and person of Jesus in the Old Testament. And the failure to understand these types will result in bad exegesis and wrong understanding. So let's jump back right into the interview with Dr. Andrew Perry and a discussion of John chapter 114, and the Word became flesh. Please go ahead and explain a little bit more your understanding that this becoming flesh is connected with the baptism. Okay. I think that uh, as a preliminary, you would want people who have, say, a Trinitarian view to justify that verse 14 is about an incarnation, or it is about the time of Jesus' birth. That is, it is about the miraculous conception of Jesus, which is the standard sort of reading um, for Trinitarians. You'd ask them to justify that timing for when the word became flesh. Something as abstract or as succinctly stated as the word became flesh doesn't actually tell you or give you a, you know, a certain indication as to when this happened. And the alternative from early church readings is that the word became flesh at the baptism of Christ or during the baptism of Christ. My basic point would be to establish this as the timing of when the word became flesh is that to have the power of the word of God is something associated with the Spirit of God in the Old Testament, that the Spirit descended upon Christ. And so that would be the timing that I would propose on the basis of Old Testament precedent. So that would be the most general point that I would make as to identifying when the word became flesh. But of course, it depends on reading again as a became and an account of a happening rather than a statement of fact which you prefer i mean there are lots of other points to be made okay i still won't argue with the idea of a happening i really actually agree with that but with probably just a bit of a different nuance or understanding than you have so one of the points you made, Andrew, that is against the incarnation idea, which as far as I understand, too, this would be the typical, fair to say, uh, more prominent biblical Unitarian view right now, is that there is some kind of a incarnation here of the abstract word of God becoming a man at birth. If I'm not mistaken, that's probably the way they would be interpreted. Yeah. Well, it's such a um, jargon-filled way of expressing 
what's going on, isn't it, on in verse 14, the very word incarnation. Um, we don't know whether became flesh means incarnation. We don't have precedence for became flesh in Second Temple writings. Um, we're dealing with something rather unique in the prologue here, aren't we? So we have to argue a case that we have an incarnation here. Um, we even have to say, well, would it be an incarnation? Can there be an incarnation of an abstract quality such as the word of God in a human being? After all, God continues to speak. He continues to have power in his word. And the whole point about the concept of the word of God in Genesis is that it's not an attribute. It's an episodic thing. It's something that God says. As soon as he says something, his word exists. If he hasn't said that something, his word in that regard hasn't existed. Can I just ask you, explain for us a little bit more what you mean by episodic? Episodic means uh, something that is passing, that it comes into being and then goes out of being. As I speak these words, they're coming into being and going out of being, and more words are following on. And these words uh, have an effect or no effect, but God's words have an effect. And we have to remember that Genesis 1 is at the background of John's thinking, and he's seeing God speaking and it having an effect. And he's seeing, remembering his experience of Jesus's ministry, that he would speak and there would be powerful effects in the miracles that he I think he's explaining when he says the word became flesh. So you have to justify also having a sort of attribute approach to the word of God, that it is actually an attribute. And philosophically, I think that's difficult to do. Um, we can certainly justify an attribute approach to uh, things like the reason of God or God's faculties or the faculty of speech even. But when we come to the word and what that is, it's episodic. And I think that that's a major problem for the incarnation reading because you don't incar having an incarnation of something that is episodic. What you have is an empowerment to speak and have the same power as the voice of God has. So rather than incarnation, I think empowerment is the correct way to read verse 14. That's interesting. And I will say that one of the advantages in understanding John 1.14 in the baptism context is that words are wind. Words are breath. Yeah. Words are spirit, yeah. and the word is something that has come out, and you're right. The breath is, it's not something in my mind. It's an utterance. It's a, it's a word. It's not it's episodic. A, it's, yeah. By the yes. word. Yeah. Right. It's, yeah, not, the word it's not before. It's not a word until it comes out of my mouth. That's right. And, I think that's a major problem for the incarnation reading. 
you know, by the word of the Lord were the heavens made and by the breath of his mouth, is it? Mm-hmm. Um, yep, it's episodic, it's fleeting, it's there, it has an effect. You can write it down, you can re-speak it, God can say it again, and so on. But um, it's not something that is can be incarnated as God. What becomes flesh is the power to speak as God, and that is what it means when it says the word became flesh. So I think this episodic character of the word of God, as he speaks it, prevents an incarnation reading of John 1 verse 14. Okay, Andrew, let me ask you this then. One of the points that you've made, and I think rightly so, that shows the incarnation interpretations of verse 14 to be unlikely is that there is no description of the birth of Jesus in this gospel. The writer is just totally silent about Jesus' birth. And if we expected verse 14 to mean that God became flesh, then that would be a topic that would be addressed, that we have here a description of how it was that God or one member of a Godhead became flesh. There's simply no description of the birth. And I think you're absolutely right about that. Can I also ask you then if the becoming flesh, the word becoming flesh in verse 14, is the baptism event. The Gospel of John doesn't really describe much about Jesus' baptism. It's really only a recollection of the baptism by John the Baptist in his testimony. This is in yeah. John 1, 29 and following where he's, he's only recalling the baptism. This is after Jesus has been baptized, and he sees him again, and he says that I myself did not know him. This is verse 31 in John 1. But I first came baptizing with water that he might be revealed to Israel. Verse 32, John bore witness. I saw the Spirit descend as a dove from heaven, and it remained on him. I myself did not know him. But he who sent me to baptize with water said to me, he on whom you see the Spirit descend and remain, this is the one who baptizes with the Holy Spirit. I have seen and have borne witness that this is the Son of God. Yeah. Well, you have a, a very short description. You know, you don't have Jesus going to the Jordan and, and God speaking. and You do have John's recollection. But it seems to me if... The author wanted to describe that this is the event in which the word became flesh. It seems to be a scanty description post-baptism event. Is that well, a problem? Um, bigger problem as the first problem that you raised with the absence of the birth narratives for a standard incarnation reading, because mm -hmm. they're certainly absent. Uh, but we at least have the mention of Jesus' baptism in this recollection of John the Baptist 
a recollection which is introduced in verse 19 as his witness statement. And that word is the same word that we have in John 1 verse 6. John the Baptist, there was a man who came, he came for a whip to be a witness. So this witness statement is tied into the prologue at that point. And therefore, the fact that this witness statement does include John's identification of Jesus, that baptism event, I think, makes the baptism the only real candidate for the event of the word becoming flesh. But you are correct to observe, well, hmm, verse 14 doesn't use baptismal language in any way. And therefore, it's just an implied reading of verse 14, or it's something that you're bringing to verse 14. And I think that's fair enough. But there are quite a number of reasons that we can give for putting verse 14 into a baptismal context, not least of which is the reason that John's witness statement in verse 19 following includes uh, a reference to Jesus' baptism and his realisation of who Jesus was at the event of his baptism. That would be one reason for contextualising verse 14 with the baptism of Christ. And the birth of Christ, as I said, is completely absent from the prologue and yeah. surrounding verse 14. No, so that is a problem for incarnation readings. I agree 100% on the incarnation. 114 doesn't have anything to do with the incarnation. Let, let me ask you, Andrew, why, why flesh? Why is why does the author use flesh here? Um, instead of say something like the word became man, or yeah, you know, the, or the word was a man, mm -hmm. you know, all these things. Um, well, again, I think that John is combating ideas. And an idea that Jesus was more than a man. He only seemed to be a man. I think he's combating that with the choice of the flesh word. I think he's also making a statement, or it could be making a statement like Paul makes with regard to Jesus being born in the Davidic line and descended from David according to the flesh. I think he might be wanting to have that also in the mix but um, both those things I think uh, are, are somewhat different to saying as we discussed earlier that he's making a statement about human nature I don't think it's a contrast say with uh, the spirit in the flesh that Paul makes or an association of the flesh with its sinful tendencies or anything like that. So that's how I would progress our understanding of flesh in John 1.14 against the background of those who said Jesus only appeared to be a man and against the background of Jesus being born in the line of David according to the flesh. Okay, Andrew, anything else you want to say on verse 14? No, I'm okay. There's a couple other things I'd like to ask you. Can I have you comment on verse 10? What does it mean 
that the world was made through him? Because I know in the Trinitarian world, using the word yeah. not to mean the planet, but yeah. uh, the civilization, this is understood to be the creation of the physical elements. And I think yeah. probably, too, in some of the biblical Unitarian streams, they interpret this as being creation. But how oh. do you understand the statement there in verse 10? He was in the world, and the world came to be or was made through him, yet the world knew him not. Yeah. Well, whatever we say the world made through him means, or what the world refers to there, must be the same as what the world refers to in the last clause, and the world did not know him. So we're definitely talking about a society. It's certainly not the Genesis creation, because the world that did not know him isn't relevant to the Genesis creation. So in order to decide, well, what is the society here? You have two options. You can either say it's humankind, it's mankind in general. They did not know him. Or you can be more specific and you can say, well, it is Israel, the people to whom he came. They did not know him. And the way that I would argue for it being Israel is firstly to go to verses that show, well, it was them that did not know him. And it was to them that Jesus was sent. He was sent to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. And so I think that what we need to ask ourselves is, how can we say that the world, this world, was made through Jesus? So that's the first point. Now, for those who say it's humankind, the question would become, well, how can humankind be made through Jesus? And then people might say, well, there's no way we can understand that. So that means that what we've been saying about verse 1 is completely wrong. It's not Jesus. It's the hypostasis that is the word of God that created all things. So you find people come to verse 10 and they will argue back with regard to verse 1 and what verse 1 should mean. Um, so if we're going to say that we've proved that Jesus is the person referred to in verse 1, we have to explain how it can be said by John that the world was made through him. Now, on the reading that it is Israel, how was Israel made through Jesus? The way we can understand this is to think in terms of typology and those in the Old Testament who represent Christ, who are types of Christ. And so I would say that Israel was made in the event of the Exodus through the work of the angel of the Lord. The angel of the Lord said to Moses that he would destroy Israel because of their sin and that he would make of Moses a new nation. That tells us that the angel of the Lord had this understanding of what he was doing in the purpose of God, which was to make the people of Israel. So we have a clear identification of who made the people of Israel in the event of the Exodus and that it was the angel of the Lord. And therefore, you might say, well, the angel of the Lord is not Jesus. And of course, it's, a, it's an old commentary view that 
the angel of the Lord in the Old Testament was Jesus. But my argument would be that the angel of the Lord wasn't Jesus, but the redemption of Israel from Egypt is a type of our redemption from the bondage of sin. And because the redemption of Israel from Egypt is a type of our redemption from the bondage of sin, this is what John is saying. The world of Israel was made through Jesus because the angel of the Lord brought them out of Egypt. And that is a type of our redemption from sin. I think it's fairly clear through a word study of the word world here in Greek is cosmos. And yeah. when we see the use of cosmos in the Gospel of John, it doesn't mean the physical planet. It doesn't no. mean the created universe, but it refers to society, yeah. as you've used the word society, yes. civilization, and specifically uh, to the people of Israel. Yeah, that's my reading of John's use of the term world. I mean, it's a very, you have to identify who's using the word in John's gospel. Is it the Pharisees? Is it the disciples? Is it Jesus? Is it the narrator? And when we look at Jesus's use of the term world, and it's a contrast that he sets up between those who are with him, his disciples, who are not of the world, and those who are against him, his opponents, who are of the world. Mm -hmm. And I think that's the essential point that restricts our understanding of the world in John 1.10 to the people that he came to. He came to his own, and his own received him not, as John goes on to say. But we then, as I say, have the problem, well, how can that world have been made through Jesus? Well, it's only made through Jesus in terms of the typology that we see in the work of the angel of the Lord, who redeemed Israel from the, the bondage of Egypt. And that's a type for our salvation, which, of course, is about the new creation, which, of course, is what the prologue of John is about. I think John 3.17 corroborates this understanding of the word world, where the writer says, For God sent the Son into the world, not to condemn the world, but that the world might be saved through him. So yes. the, you might have, you'd have a parallel between the world coming to be or be made through him to the world being saved through him. Fair enough? Um, there may be a difference of reading there or between us. I think you might be trying to read John 1.10 prospectively as a uh, statement of what is going to be, whereas I am reading John 1 retrospectively as a statement of what was and what was being a type of what will be. Okay. Speaking of types, Andrew, let me shift gears a little bit. Could you give us some examples of major types that you see in the prologue? And I think by extension, then that would continue into the gospel itself. That is, 
parallels from the Old Testament that John is picking up on here, themes that he's picking up on, that I think fair to say a Hebrew reader would be able to understand better perhaps than a Gentile Greek. It somewhat relates to who are the recipients, the original recipients of this letter, if they're Jews or Gentiles, but I think a Hebrew mind, a Hebrew, someone more familiar with the Old Testament texts would probably be able to recognize better the types and the parallels with the Old Testament. And I've appreciated some of the observations you've made in this way. Can you mention some of these types that you see? We just mentioned one here, but others in the prologue? Well, so far in this talk, this conversation, we've mentioned the Moses type in relation to verse 1, and the mediatorial aspect of Moses' work, and how that is a type of Jesus' mediatorship. Um, one that we haven't mentioned so far would be identification of Jesus as the true light. And the word true is used by John generally to indicate a type, such as the true vine. Uh, so we would identify Jesus there as a the antitype to the angel of the Lord, because the angel of the Lord was the one who led Israel through the wilderness from Egypt by being a pillar of fire, or being a light to Israel through the wilderness. So I would identify a type there as well. I think that there's a, there are echoes of Abraham and Isaac in the emphasis in the prologue on Jesus being begotten of the Father. Um, Abraham is a type of God the Father in relation to Isaac as they go to Moriah to make the sacrifice. And that's certainly present in John chapter 17. And also I think it's alluded to here in the prologue in the talk of Jesus being in the bosom of the Father and Jesus being the only begotten Son. I think this is bringing in Abraham and Isaac typology to the prologue. So those would be the examples that are more clear in the prologue. And I think they show that John is writing typology a lot of the time. And because he's learned this from Jesus, because Jesus said that the, the scriptures spoke of him. And I don't think he's just referring to famous single verse prophecies like the one that refers to Jesus being born in Bethlehem or there being a son born unto us and so on. He's referring to the Old Testament stories and the details in those Old Testament stories where we can see types of Jesus. And there are many books on these types, generally older books, such as Christ in all the scriptures or a study of the types. These are two titles that come to mind. So we're not saying anything controversial. All we're doing really is be more sensitive to the writer's use of typology. We're not just looking for big words that signal a type, such as the word manna, say, in John chapter 6, but we're looking for small words 
that indicate there is a type or an Old Testament incident that lies behind the choice of that word. So when we talked about Moses in verse 1, of course it was the unusual Greek phrase prostontheon that sent us back into the Old Testament to look for the equivalent in the Hebrew, but represented to some extent in the Septuagint of prostontheon. And we found Moses as the leading person. And of course, Moses is a very significant figure. Um, Jesus is the prophet like unto Moses, and therefore the connection is fairly easy to establish between Moses and Jesus, with Moses as the type. So it's little words like proston and theon, rather than sort of theme or topic words that often show us the typological background to John's language. And I think this is a mistake of commentary exegesis, which is to not be sensitive to this use of small words and to restrict typology to the big topic words like manner. Excellent. Mm -hmm. Yeah, we have the specific comparison or type between Moses and Jesus in the prologue in verse 17. That's this is clear. The yeah. Torah was given through Moses, thankfully, yeah. and grace and truth came through. Jesus Christ. So there's a, a direct comparison. And yeah. I think, Andrew, it's, it's another evidence that the prologue is not a direct reference to the Genesis creation. But once we see the, the type or the parallel, we can understand that's why he's using the language he is to describe this new event, this new episode in Jesus. And then, and it's not only Genesis 1 that is a type for the author in introducing Jesus, but we have Genesis 22 with Abraham and Isaac, this unique son. I would probably argue, we don't have to now, but the idea of a unique son. But he's definitely making a comparison or using the type of Abraham taking his unique son, his ben yichidcha, your unique son whom you love uh, in Genesis 22. So these additional types in the prologue are evidence that the Genesis creation account is being echoed here and not directly referred to. Yeah, I would agree. Um, the only last point I would make about typology is that reading the prologue with an eye for the use of types is just an illustration or an example of what we have to do with all the New Testament passages which are used in debate about the pre-existence of Christ and the deity of Christ. And generally speaking, the reason why people see the deity of Christ or the pre-existence of Christ in these passages, all of which are fairly well known, is because they're not reading those passages on typology. And as soon as they do, as soon as you make that change, or you learn how to read the New Testament with an eye on typology, then you see that these difficult texts are not at all about the deity of Christ or the pre-existence of Christ. So really, I guess it was the, the loss of this ability 
within the church to read typologically that um, contributed to the development of the doctrine of the Trinity. Very interesting. Okay, Andrew, well, thank you so much for your time. Okay. And blessings in the Messiah, Jesus. Okay. Bye-bye, then. I enjoyed the discussion with Dr. Perry. I find him insightful and thought-provoking. We had additional discussion in which Dr. Perry presented examples of more types, parallels, and patterns from the Old Testament that can be seen in the life of Jesus, especially presented in the Gospel of John. People can find some of these additional typological interpretations in Dr. Perry's book on the prologue of the Gospel of John. For instance, one that he suggested that I thought very interesting was that we need to understand John the Baptizer's words where John the baptizer said of Jesus, both in John chapter 1, verse 15, and again repeating it in verse 30, where John the baptizer said, After me comes a man who ranks before me, for he was before me. And people have often interpreted this passage as some kind of a pre-existence evidence for Jesus. But Dr. Perry says, no, we need to understand that the pattern or the type here that we have in the Old Testament is that of a near kinsman redeemer and that John the baptizer recognizes that Jesus is before him in position as the kinsman redeemer. doesn't have anything to do with time in that sense. A nearer kinsman redeemer could be born later but still be before another relative, nearer, as regards to the Goel, the Redeemer. So John the Baptist is recognizing that Jesus is before him in status as Redeemer. And it's interesting to see how John the Baptist talks about not being worthy to carry his shoe. If you remember in the Kinsman Redeemer story in the book of Ruth with Boaz, there's a ceremony where a shoe is untied and given over and so forth. And the relationship of Jesus and John the Baptist is described in the Gospel of John, but also in the Synoptics, as of a groom who has the bride and the prominent position as opposed to his friend. Jesus is the groom and John the Baptist is his friend. So we see the marriage bridegroom analogy being used as John the baptizer and Jesus define their relationship. So Jesus is before in the sense of position or status as the kinsman redeemer. That's just another example that Dr. Perry gives to show that we, we can understand the Gospel of John better if we understand these parallels and these types from the Old Testament. As Jesus said in the Gospel of John, you search the scriptures because you think that in them you have eternal life, and it is they who bear witness to me. And he says of Moses, If you believe Moses, you would believe in me, for he wrote of me. So thanks again, Dr. Perry, for getting us thinking 
and I think getting us on a much better path to understanding the prologue to the Gospel of John. The humble will hear and rejoice.